Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 468 for November 15th, 2018. On today's show, saxophonist Walter Smith III. Now, if you want to listen to Walter Smith III, you have a plethora of choices. He's got a new album, Twio, under his own leadership, which we'll talk about in this interview. He's also on the eponymous debut release by The Collective In Common. He's on the Eric Harlan Voyager album 13th Floor that just came out. Also an album that came out last month, Bill Stewart's Band Menu. And who knows, probably another dozen or so before the year is out. But let's start with a track from Twio. I'm excited to have Walter Smith III on the show today. Walter, it's great to have you here. Thanks for joining me. Of course. Thanks for having me, Jason. So uh, the new record is called Twio, uh, T-W-I-O. And the first reaction I had the first time I played it was, oh, my gosh, I'm home. This this record just feels <laughs> – it feels just – really comfortable and i mean that in the best possible way like i kind of imagine that every track was recorded was preceded by the words hey you want to try insert name of song and (laughs) and i really do mean that in the best possible way like i i love complex arrangements and everything too but sometimes it's just nice to hear what i know is not effortless but sounds like effortless playing and so i wonder if that is anywhere near what the recording session was actually like or if i'm if i'm hearing effortlessness in thousands of hours of work (laughs) <laughs> well, thousands of hours of work leading up to that as far as practicing and all Fair that. Fair enough. But like for the, for the actual recording, uh, yeah, you know, the initial idea when I wanted to do trio thing and play tunes or standards or whatever um, was exactly what you said the first time, was me sitting down and writing down, writing out arrangements and going through all this stuff and, you know, making them basically like solo sections I might write for one of my own songs, but with a familiar melody on top. And as I started to play them with people a little bit and, you know, getting ready for the recording, I realized that I was kind of defeating the whole purpose of why I wanted to do this in the first place. So I got rid of all that stuff and then just kind of played them straight. And, and it's, it it wasn't as casual as like, do you want to try this? At least, I told everyone what to listen to, you know, like what to check out before and what we would play, but it's pretty close to that. No arrangements, just here we go. Uh, Now, will you, uh, given that this album is so completely dependent on the people who are on it uh, because it is so intimate in the way you just described, can you talk about the folks who join you on this record before we say more about the record itself? Sure. So Eric, 
Eric Harland and Harish Raghavan, Harland on drums and Harish on bass. Uh, that is kind of one of the reasons that this came up um, where we had been on a tour and went to a session one night and ended up playing trio. And I knew that that was a fun mix of people where it's kind of unpredictable, but also very uh, intuitive, I guess, between the three of us. So that was kind of the core group. And also with guests, Christian McBride on bass and Joshua Redman on saxophone. And am I right that uh, one track on this album, uh, Ferdy Grofay's On the Trail, is that the only thing that wasn't arranged by you or kind of conceived by you? That's a Dana Stevens arrangement, is that right? That is Dana's arrangement. Um, and uh, I don't even remember what's on there, but that's fair to say. We could say that. <laughs> Sounds right. <laughs> uh, so that the, record's old news at this point. That's man. right. No, I dig. I, I get it. I get it. <laughs> That's a difficulty of talking to people about their last album. Like, I feel like every interview right. should be about your next album. Um, <laughs> speaking either about this record or just about the idea of trio playing in general, in other words, without uh, the kind of classic saxophone trio, which is saxophone, bass, and drums, so there's no chordal instrument, does that, I would imagine that presents both freedom and some challenges at the same time. Can you say something about that? Yeah, I mean, like you said, there there are challenges in many ways, um, both in terms of uh, filling up space, actually deciding where you should not be playing, leaving space, even an endurance thing, uh, because you're playing a lot more than you are when even with one more person, if it's quartet. Um, I just played a week at the Vanguard last week doing two sets, two 75-minute sets every night with Bill Stewart's trio. And it's like by the time we got to like Saturday, my lips are like raw <laughs> playing that much. But so that that's like a real, you know, aspect as far as trio playing goes is just like having that stamina and the endurance. But um, the like you like you also mentioned, there's a lot of freedom, and you know, removing one person from any equation makes decisions that much easier to make. So something happens, and you know, it's only the three of us playing and we can definitely move to that spot or, or whatever. Everyone's listening. You can hear things very clearly. Uh, there's not a lot going on outside of uh, just the three. So um, it does, it does lead towards uh, a lot of interaction and everyone kind of having a direct uh, influence on what's going to happen with the music. Does it? It feels like it would give the bassist a lot more harmonic influence as well, since if they decide to outline a chord in a different way or uh, something like that, the the entire harmonic structure can change. Is that is that fair yeah. to say? Sure, absolutely. Not, but I I kind of feel like they have that anyway because you know, like <laughs> for instance, we're thinking talking about Harish, he changes so many bass notes on other songs anyway it's like you're already kind of you know listening to him the whole time to see what's going on so yes there's no one to counteract their decisions in this kind of scenario but but uh yeah they always have a lot of power uh, I want. I do want to talk about things beyond the scope of this record, but will you just uh, just pick out a couple of these tunes and talk about why they ended up here? I mean, if 
if you're going to play an album that is uh, primarily standards, obviously you have a pretty broad palette to choose from. What what was the relationship you had with some of these songs that caused them to appear here? Okay, um, sure. Some of the songs, I'm, I'm pulling it up on my phone right now so I can see what they are, actually. Um, so that shows you the relationship that I had to these songs. Um, now, they were, they were chosen uh, mainly because I like the idea of playing songs that are in this repertoire, but maybe not the, all the things you are, the, you know, Southwest Morning Sunrise, the stuff that everybody plays uh, to death almost. So just some songs that still fit into that kind of world of, of tunes that are common knowledge, but maybe lesser played. So um, Nobody Else But Me is something that I remember first hearing uh, on a Kenny Durham record a long time ago, it's called Showboat, uh, and that's the, the show that nobody else but me is from. And because I was talking to Jimmy Heath at the time, and he mentioned that as something that I should check out for his playing. And when I checked it out, it was pretty ridiculous. And that's always stuck with me. So I've been playing that song for a long time. might have been the second Wayne record that I bought and that tune always just you know for that style of music was was something that was kind of mysterious but yet still fit into like that sidewinder kind of vibe um the peacocks another one that that was like my favorite tune to kind of play and when we've done the tour stuff it's always been the one that I think most people are like, what, what is that song? You know, like that kind of thing. Weird melody, um, but really fun to play over. What is it that makes a song fun to play over, or that particular song fun to play over? Uh, to me, since we're doing this without arrangements, something that as soon as you hear the melody or the harmony or whatever you, you grab onto, you're presented with a lot of options. Um, it feels open-ended, but also there's a built-in vibe to the song. And every one of these songs on the album has that to me. Like either it's sing-songy or it's kind of dark or happy, whatever, however you want to think about it. Um, but they all have something that, you know, every time I just start playing the melody, I get put in that space. So it's uh, really easy to kind of create in that way. You mentioned uh, the tour. Do these songs or the other songs that you choose to play in the live shows, do they take on new characters each and every night? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because of the nature of everyone's familiarity with playing music like this, I think more so than even some of the original music that I would typically bring out, uh, people are just 
down to try stuff and you know from from doing it in a different time signature to not playing the you know like whatever kind of thing comes up but i don't think anyone has that same uh i don't know like fear of failing because it's so easy to keep you know to to keep your place in it and know exactly what's happening and also being a trio it's easy to recover from anything that doesn't really work well know that you're uh you spend a lot of time on the road or at least are spending a lot of time on the road now is that a is that a pretty common thing for you do you spend a lot of time traveling to play music uh yeah i mean over the years it's kind of just been the way that i make a living (laughs) in combination with a lot of other things uh i do i do some teaching um I do some recording you know all that kind of stuff that typically falls under the umbrella of musicians and are you seeing any changes in the audiences as you're traveling over the years or in the different places you're going? Anything that, you know, either surprises you, makes you happy, makes you worried, any any of those things as you travel around? <laughs> uh, not really. I mean, you know, it's you could play at the same place three times in a year and have three different experiences. So I think it's hard, you know, to keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening. Uh, I know you always hear people say the audiences aren't there and all that kind of stuff, but... You know, I haven't really found that to be true. Every place we play, there's always a good showing and people are enthusiastic about what's happening today with music. So, Yeah, it does seem like a pretty kind of fertile, creative time in the in the jazz scene. I mean, it just it feels like there's a ton of amazing stuff going on every place these days. Yeah, I mean, everyone has such a high level of musicianship now that um it's it's exciting to see like when someone puts out a new album uh that you know there's going to be a certain level of quality behind it and having a lot of friends that are touring with their own bands now it's i mean it's really inspiring to see and i know that um you know not not being around before I was around, you know, I couldn't really see what, what, what was happening in the nineties or the eighties and all that kind of stuff. But what I see happening now is, you know, it's, it's really good quality music and people are booking the right stuff. So I think the audiences are enjoying this time in particular. You talked about the quality of musicianship. Is that, is that part of the the kind of institutionalization of jazz that people are kind of starting with a, a pretty strong foundation? Uh, it could be. 
Um, it could also be that people have a way to connect with each other. There's a lot of information available. Um, you know, even not not necessarily learning institutionally, but all the programs that are put together in the summer or like summer camps where it's it's more a place for like young musicians to meet each other and see kind of what what other people are are doing and kind of use it as almost like a litmus test uh, to push themselves to get better um you see it at a lot of these camps when you're when you're on faculty or something it's you know they're they're excited about whoever is there to teach them but like the community that they're forming before they even get to college you know they're getting to meet all these people from around the country and you know if nothing else that that little push that they get from their peers uh at least i know for myself that was the biggest thing that kept me you know wanting to get better and improve uh was was my peer group more so than anything related to school i know you had a lot of you know kind of success early on and scholarships and awards and those kinds of things can you talk a little bit about that your kind of upbringing in the music how you when things switched for you to become okay this is what i'm gonna really pursue for my livelihood sure um it i went to school in houston texas uh my father was a band director there so i started playing saxophone really young um second grade and kind of just played through school took some private lessons um and when it came time for high school i auditioned for the performing arts school and got in uh, as an alto saxophone player and the first person I met there, uh, we, there was an ice cream social the week before school and Kendrick Scott was there. And that was like my first like buddy in the jazz department there. And a bunch of other people were also starting that year. Um, I guess, uh, Mike Moreno and Robert Glasper were a year ahead of us in school. So they had either been there or they came as 10th graders. I don't know, but we kind of started hanging out a lot together and, passing CDs between each other and trying to learn songs off of albums. And, you know, it was, it was that thing I was just talking about. We were in school and we were getting a lot of great information there, but the stuff that we were doing like on our own and after school or before school or at lunch, listening and working on all that kind of stuff was the thing that really started to push me. And uh, when I got, when I got time to look at schools, um, uh, I wanted to look at a school that had a music edu- uh, music education department, excuse me. And um, I decided to apply at Berkeley College of Music in Boston. And that was kind of that. I got a scholarship to go and they had the degree I wanted to do. So it was kind of a no brainer. So I went there and ended up going there with also with Kendrick Scott and the bass player that was in our class as well, Mark Kelly. Um, and we all went up there together and that was kind of the, the start of really getting serious about music as a career, not necessarily as a performer, but just music in general as a career. Let's take 
take a quick break from the show to talk about how you can support The Jazz Session. Go to patreon.com slash thejazzsession. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thejazzsession. $5 a month gets you a bonus episode each and every month in which someone from the jazz world or the world at large talks about a jazz record they like. If we reach 100 subscribers at $5 a month, I'll make three interview shows a month. Right now we do one on the 1st and the 15th, but we'll go up to three if we get to 100 subscribers. And as of this recording, we're a quarter of the way there, which is very exciting. If we get to 200 subscribers, the show comes out weekly, so you get to decide. Go to patreon.com slash thejazzsession, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thejazzsession to become a member today. Thanks to Bill, Sue, Vincent, and past guest of the show, pianist Jeffrey Kieser, for becoming members since the last episode. Now, back to the show. There have been a lot of origin stories in the 11 years of this show, but I have to say that's the first one that involved an ice cream social. So congratulations on <laughs> on breaking new ground. That's, <laughs> that's very cool. Um, always, always trying to innovate. That's right. Well, you definitely, you definitely have. Uh, so once you, a lot of people end up at Berkeley, and uh, you know some perspective percentage of them will go on to make albums and have success as either performers or educators but it doesn't feel to me like it's a a huge percentage and was there was there anything that happened there or some connections you made or something that that opened the door for you to really pursue this as a professional uh yeah well i mean first the first thing is that i think the thing that's lost about what the success of that school is at least is that they're, they have a large international population. And even though um, a lot of them don't stay in the U.S. afterwards, they go back wherever they came from and really kind of rule the scene where, wherever that is. So it's like while it may not always register on the radar here, when I go anywhere in the world, like traveling, I'm always running into people like, that I went to school with or I just missed by a year or came just after that I went to Berkeley and they're, you know, playing all over the place, touring Europe, doing their records, whatever, the, all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, the performance division is one part of it. A lot of people go into the business track or the engineering thing and they're all in L.A. I see people when I'm at home all the time. It's like, man, you're out here too? And they're like, yeah, I only have 10 Grammys. I was hoping I'd have more done by now, but <laughs> okay, good, good for you. you know? <laughs> so they're, you know, they're they're out there doing it. It's just not all like in the in the jazz <laughs> world with that kind of stuff. Um, and now that I've talked so much, I forgot the second part of that question. Well, just uh, I was wondering if there were particular connections you made, you know, there or immediately after that that opened the door for you to have the career you've had i mean you've been in a lot of pretty impressive ensembles did you meet some of those folks early on and it it gave you the entree okay sure yeah uh i well one of the ones um i had i got i was lucky enough to study with george garzon and bill pierce while i was there uh and 
doing a music ed degree, you only got a few semesters of like 30 minute lessons. So <laughs> it was, it was a limited exposure to like what it meant to, to work on this stuff. So I took all the stuff they were doing and I was always practicing and getting an opportunity to play gigs around town. And Darren Barrett, who's a incredible trumpet player at the time, he had just won the Thelonious Monk competition and he was playing with Elvin Jones at the, during that, period um he started calling me for the weekly gig that was down uh, a couple blocks away from berkeley called wally's and that's like that one that has gone through the history of the school where the you know there are legendary stories of branford playing down you know like whoever went to berkeley did that gig at some point um so it was it's like a, talking about going back to endurance it was like four four and a half hours and he would play it with no break a lot of the time and you're just like playing tunes and learning music and all that kind of stuff and through just doing that gig every friday and saturday i learned a couple hundred tunes from all kind of varied uh sources stuff from like i don't know like clifford brown tunes that i had never even heard before uh woody shaw tunes like you know, things that weren't necessarily on my radar, especially as like a young student. Um, and then he also had a real push with electronics. He started bringing his EVI. So then I had to start exploring like pedals and all that kind of stuff and really got into that. And that was a really valuable thing. Also just getting performance regularly like that, like just standing up in front of people that, you know, it's not, it's not like a, listening crowd but it is a listening crowd if you're playing well and they kind of give that kind of energy so that was fun um while i was there i got to play with terrence blanchard i got to sit in with him uh he was looking for somebody to sub one gig and i went and sat in with him and played a couple tunes uh, and got got called for that gig and that was a great experience for me getting to play with somebody like that uh on that level and his band was amazing and like just being uh, almost like it validated me in a way that i felt like oh maybe i could actually play for a living or something like that uh because i had never even considered that as a possibility at that point uh that was like my third year uh in in college i was just kind of really like dug in on this idea of finishing the music ed degree and going straight into a teaching position. Wow. So that's, I mean, that's pretty far in to your performing career and education career to then suddenly realize, Oh, maybe I could do this as a player too. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, like doing, I was playing a lot of people's recitals at school and I was playing a lot of gigs around town, but to me, it, you know, I looked at friends like I like Robert Glasper was in New York, and at that time, uh, he he had done some gigs with Christian McBride, and he had played a little bit with Kenny Garrett. And I was just thinking about like, well, yeah, I think if I was really gonna pursue that, I probably should have gone to New York, or I probably should have already done one of these kind of gigs by now. So I was probably I'm glad I actually went into this music ed degree because I'm, I'm into it. And now I've, you know, I feel like I'm happy with the opportunities I get, but I'm not counting on this to do anything. So that Terrence thing kind of made, 
made it seem like maybe it was a possibility. He's just quite a presence, too. I, I uh, Obviously, I've never played with him, but I have interviewed him in the tiny green room at Jazz Standard. And uh, just the whole time I was sitting with him, there's just something about him. He just kind of has an aura, and you you really feel like you're getting a direct transmission when you're talking to that guy, at least in my experience. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's done everything there is to do as with playing, and, and he's an amazing composer writing for film, like all the, you know, whatever it is that you hope to accomplish, he's done it. And he's, he's also like a nice dude too. So that, that, like you said, there's that aura, but he makes you feel at home. And it's, you know, like it's somebody when, when you, when you're around him and you're playing, it's fun. And it's like, man, I really want to do this. So what was the first thing you did post-Berkeley? What did you decide to do in terms of trying to establish a career? Um, so after Berkeley, uh, I had done a few more gigs with Terrence here and there. Um, I started to play with some other people, some younger people. I went to Europe uh, a couple times on a, for just a few like festival gigs. But when I moved, when I finished Berkeley, I decided to move to New York. And I got into the Manhattan uh, School of Music and was going to go for the master's program there. And I think within maybe two weeks or something like that, two or three weeks of being there, I, I was starting to get called for gigs just because I knew a lot of people. Berkeley is like one of those places where, uh, you know, when you get there, somebody might only be there for one semester and then they move to New York. They might be there for a year, then they move to New York. So. By the time I got there, there were like four years of people that had moved there and had already started working and they were starting to call me. Um, some of the other connections I had from Berkeley, like I remember the first person that called me was Eric Reed, the pianist. Um, I was, I was uh, at like a, a dinner with some people from Manhattan School and my phone rang and I was like, excuse me for one second and I answered it and he's like, Walter, this is Eric Reed. Uh, I don't want to take too much of your time. I have a gig at Carnegie Hall on the 5th or whatever. Are you available? And I was like, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be there. <laughs> that kind of thing. So 
it just started to randomly happen like that. And um, I guess the first thing that was like kind of big for me uh, was getting called by Roy Haynes to play. So I did that for maybe a year and a half. That was in the Fountain of Youth Band, right? Yes. Marcus uh, Strickland had been doing it and he was like busy with a couple bands and was like having to sell out a lot of gigs and they wanted to get somebody that could do more of them. And it was kind of that same, same thing where they called, I went to his house and did a rehearsal and then they offered me some dates and they're like, are you available to make these? And I was like, uh, yes, (laughs) I'll be there. So what was it like playing with Roy? for free. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Uh, I will pay you to be here. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, it was cool in a, in a way that was very challenging for me. And like, uh, you know, when I, when I went to this house to do the rehearsal, I remember the, the guys in the band or, or the bass player in the band had kind of given me a, a rundown of the set list. So I learned all the songs and, you know, we we're in his basement playing. And I think it was a song called my heart belongs to daddy. And, and we started playing and I was like playing the, playing the melody really loose. And then he kept stopping. He's like, no, 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 no. The melody is this. This is the melody and all that kind of stuff. So it, he had like a real um, conscious way of like playing specifically what the melody was. There's room for interpretation, but only in certain parts of it. And I had always just, you know, been super loose. I'm not a person that really knows lyrics to songs um, for every song that I play, I should say. So you know, my interpretation is purely instrumental, but he was kind of getting me on that other side of things. Um, but the real challenge of it was that half the gig, or sometimes more than half, uh, I had to play soprano, and that's a that's a tough one for me. So I was always struggling on every gig, <laughs> trying to play soprano sax. And that was just because that's what he wanted on those instruments, as opposed to him yeah. saying, hey, are you comfortable playing soprano? He just said, these songs have soprano, and so you're on it. Exactly. Yeah, because they, uh, it was, you know, going back to the melody thing, they had to be in a certain register. And, you know, even though you could play it there on tenor, he wanted that other pitch or whatever. I don't know. So it was it was pretty specific. I tried sometimes to sneak in and play it on tenor, and then afterwards he would be like, yeah, so... Remember, whenever we play James, that's going to be on the <laughs> <Okay>. Gotcha. <laughs> and I always wonder when you when you play with a guy like that, did you? I mean, did you get to hear stories of the past? Did there are there kind of extra musical things that that had an impact as well? Of course, yeah, uh, a ton of those things that that I cannot share here. But <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, you, he had a lot of amazing stuff. You know, that I'm, I'm someone that talks a lot, uh, for better or worse, and that was like one of those situations where I'd sit and not say anything because everything he said was hilarious and also like a bit of history. Like he was like, yeah, I remember one time I used to race Coleman Hawkins down the West Side Highway. And I was like, wow. <laughs> I never picture people in those old days having cars. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> they had cars and they raced. <laughs> yeah like the other day was oscar pettiford's birthday and somebody posted this like pretty young like early 20s photo of him where he just looked like a total badass and i just 
I looked at that photo and I was like, oh, that's right. Yeah, he was like a 20-year-old dude just out making his bones right. at one point, <laughs> too, and I kind of forget. Exactly. He wasn't always just a giant. Exactly. Yeah. So. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So how about post-Roy? What what was the next uh, set of steps? Um, so post-Roy, um, I was engaged and moving to Los Angeles to get married uh, and planning to be based in L.A. and kind of tour out of there. And my wife is from Los Angeles, so it was going to be really convenient for if I was going to be gone, she would still be in her element, kind of. So uh, when I was moving out there, I, I remember calling Roy's manager and was like, oh, for this upcoming the thing in Europe in a couple of weeks, I just need those flights to go from LAX. And uh, <laughs> and they were like, well, why? Are you doing something out there? And I was like, no, I'm moving out there. And they were like, no, no, Roy wants the band to be in New York. So you got to decide if you if you want to do that or not wow. so um moving out there i'd already planned to do it and this was all kind of happening uh in real time and i was like kind of freaking out like well i've kind of been planning on doing that <laughs> now what am i going to do and at that same time some of my friends were coming over to my apartment i still i lived with kendrick scott uh uptown and ambrose joe sanders Tim Green, all these guys were coming up to my apartment to do their Monk Institute tapes with Kendrick, uh, playing drums on them. And they were like, man, you should just apply. You should do this. And so I made a tape with them and sent in, sent it in. And we ended up all getting in together, which was cool. And they all moved to LA at the same time. So, uh, ended up doing the Monk Institute for two years. Um, and, the added bonus, which I did not see coming, was that Terrence was the uh, musical or artistic director of that, and I got to talk composition with him for two years, and also like general therapy stuff. I was like, "What am I doing? What am I doing?" And he was just like, you know, it was like I was on his couch, and he was just telling me this, telling me that, and you know, soon after that ended, uh, a lot of the stuff I had been doing in New York, I had recorded an album that came out. I started getting opportunities to tour as a leader. I'd been playing with Christian Scott. He was kind of getting bigger and bigger during that time. So we did some more records and some tours. Sean Jones, same thing. All these things started to kind of happen at once. Jason Moran started this project. I was involved with that. Ron Blake started doing Saturday Night Live. So Christian McBride called me to be in his band at Christian McBride band and sub for Ron Blake. Like it was just like, as soon as the monk thing ended, 50 things all happened at once. And it was just like, I was just gone all the time. And then somewhere in there, maybe two years later, Terrence called and I joined his band for a short time, maybe six months, eight months, something like that. Uh, and then Ambrose called and he had gotten signed to blue note. And I started, playing with him and we did a lot of gigs with that band um but over the course of about five or six years and a bunch of other stuff on you know in between there but that was kind of the general um way that it kind of went after moving to la and i know this next question will out me as a complete east coast chauvinist which i am but uh <laughs> to, to me there's a thing about like 
in the jazz world, like LA is like it could be Mars. And I know that's not true, but I but I do feel like there's so much centered in New York that LA is like where the studio scene is. Um but it really sounds like except for the Roy Haynes gig, that moving to L.A. far from impeding your career may in fact have been exactly what it needed. Yeah, I mean, it didn't, it didn't contribute to anything because, I, you know, basically everything I've ever done is based out of relationships with people in New York. Um, you know, I, I live in L.A., but I could count the number of gigs I did. Uh, I've been there 13 years that I've done, you know, on my, on my hands and feet, you know, it's not a lot. Yeah. So you don't drive home from too many shows. No, 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 not at all. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, it's the East coast. The thing that it's done for me though, is it's kept me excited about like being in New York. Like I'm the guy that's always like, after going to dinner with people, I'm like, hey, let's go to Small. Come on, come on, come on, come on. And they're like, oh, come on. No, no. And I'm like, come on, let's go to Small. You know, I'm like, it's just like I'm 18 or something. Uh, and just because, you know, not being around it all the time, you really appreciate it. I, you know, going down and seeing Roy Hargrove walk in, it's still exciting to me. It's like, oh, what's up, Roy? You know, that kind of thing. I love it. And, uh, but I know maybe if I lived near it, I wouldn't have that same enthusiasm for it. So in a way it's been, it was good for career stuff. I don't know that it would have been different if I stayed in New York, maybe. Um, but definitely for just general enthusiasm and like dedication towards working and practicing and doing all that stuff, just because in LA, kind of like you said, it's not the same. There aren't a million clubs, there aren't a million people playing uh, where you can go to five different things in a night. You pick one thing, and that one thing may be too much of a pain to get to, depending on the time that it starts, you know, from where you live. So uh, it really, L.A. was a big motivator for me. So uh, at the very beginning of this interview, when I was asking you about uh, the most recent record, you uh, referred to it as old news. So what's the new news? What are you working on now? What are you looking toward? What are the projects that are kind of in the hopper right now? <laughs> um, this is a busy month for releases, um, but the only thing that I'm kind of uh, have any kind of leadership role in, I did an album co-led with the guitarist Matt Stevens that'll be out in maybe the first week of November, something like that, um, and with a great vibes player, young guy in New York, Joel Ross, who I'm sure you're aware of, and uh, Harish Raghavan and Marcus Gilmore. Oh, wow. And that is, yeah, it's kind of a weird record, but like also like <laughs> kind of cool uh, in a way. Uh, excited for that one. How did you guys end up co-leading a project together? Is that a long-time relationship? Or? Yeah, I went to Berkeley with Matt, and we played with Christian Scott together. Uh, once upon a time, we were both signed to Concord together and played in a band uh, called Next Collective that was like a Concord project. Um, and kind of over the years, done some stuff. He played on my al- uh, two albums ago, and we did bunch of stuff with that and we'd always talked about doing something a little less uh in either of our general artistic directions and trying to find something some other place to go with it and 
you know, for this one, the writing portion of it was geared towards that. And I think <laughs> if nothing else, that was accomplished. It's definitely different than anything I would ever put out or maybe Matt as well. So we're, we're kind of excited about that. Oh, that's awesome. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Uh, so tell me what else you're involved in. Uh, I mentioned the Bill Stewart uh, trio thing. He has an album coming out uh, next week, so maybe second or third week of October. Uh, there's a young pianist in L.A. that I played on her album. Her name is Connie Han, Han and she just got signed to Mac Avenue. She's releasing an album next week. Uh, the week after that, Ambrose's new project origami harvest comes out uh which is a pretty incredible uh, artistic statement um i have nothing to do with much of it but listening to what i've heard is just amazing um after that the next week eric harlan's new voyager band album comes out um and that that should be really cool there's some great great songs on there uh everybody wrote beautiful music and I think it came out well. I don't know. I haven't really heard it, so <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is that everybody I'm going to interview for the next couple of months is going to have an album that you are on, it sounds like. <laughs> yes, and they will all complain about that one fact. <laughs> it would have been great. <laughs> lesson learned, lesson learned. Yeah, well, man, that's exactly. awesome. I mean, it just, I mean, that's a really impressive list of stuff to be involved with both under your own leadership and working with, you know, other really bright lights in the scene. I mean, that's, that's got to feel pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it just all always reinforces that feeling of, you know, I'm, I've been very lucky with all this stuff. So I don't take that for granted. And I, you know, I really enjoy being able to be a part of all of it. Well, uh, Walter Smith III, it's been really awesome to talk to you. Uh, I just, I really, really love this most recent record and your appearances on these other things. Uh, I'm really glad you spent some time, and I hope you'll come back and keep us up to date about what's going on in your career. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me, Jason.
Sextet for the theme music. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the show's logo. You can find the show on social media, facebook.com slash the jazz session, Twitter at jazz sesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H. I'm at Jason D. Crane on Twitter and Instagram if you want to find my personal accounts. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. It helps other people find The Jazz Session. You can become a member at patreon.com slash thejazzsession, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash thejazzsession. New episodes drop on the 1st and 15th of each month, December 1st, a conversation with Wayne Horvitz. Come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.